Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kim Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined in real life by my co-host and collaborator, Rachel Beatty-Riedel. Thanks, Kim. So this week we are recording together from the African Studies Association annual conference in Atlanta. So we're finally in the same place in time zone. And we have an opportunity to speak with a really amazing set of scholars with new books out. So it makes me even more enthusiastic than usual. Same. (laughs) (laughs) So there are many great panels here at ASA. And I want to highlight that Kim's fantastic book, Doomed Interventions, The Failure of Global Responses to AIDS in Africa, was featured in an author meets critics roundtable, including Mark Daku, Emmanuel Balogun, Lara Smith, and Adia Benton as the expert responders. These are a set of really important conversations that are emerging on the nature of international public health interventions and their complex impact. So I want to say congrats to Kim on an an exceptional book. And thanks to all of the participants in that roundtable for the enlightening conversation. Thanks, Rachel. And I feel really lucky to have had some smart folks all come together and share their ideas about the book. So this actually relates to the first news story that I want to mention, just speaking to the saliency of of the topic of your book and your research, and that is the ongoing outbreak of Ebola in the DRC. So since August of this year, Ebola was confirmed in eastern North Kivu and Ituri provinces, and to date, over 347 cases have already been confirmed with more than 200 mortalities. Right, and they're saying actually that uh, just this this week they said that it's actually with the number of of deaths in this outbreak that it's the second largest uh, Ebola outbreak in history. Exactly, and it's so interesting to think about the way in which DRC itself is experienced in dealing with the virus. Mm -hmm. So it has had 10 episodic outbreaks since the mid-1970s. This particular outbreak has a number of interacting factors that make it the case particularly difficult to contain, and therefore unlike anything that DRC has really experienced before. And some of those factors are the North Kivu and Ituri provinces are among the most unstable and densely populated in the country, Mm -hmm. and subject just to some of the highest levels of human mobility. Right. Right. And then at the same time, there are warnings that the perfect storm of insecurity, community resistance about vaccinations, and political manipulation threatens efforts to contain the spread of the virus. Mm -hmm. And so all of this is in combination, of course, with the run-up to a crucial presidential election on December 23rd, which only exacerbates the concerns surrounding voting access and safety for those provinces more generally. Yeah, and we'll be chatting with Laura C. of Colby College in an upcoming episode about those elections, so stay tuned. Fantastic. Um, On the topic of elections, earlier this week, Madagascar announced that no candidate secured a majority of the votes in its presidential election earlier this month. There will be a runoff election also slated for December. Interesting to note, the incumbent president actually lost his bid for re-election and didn't even make it to the runoff. Uh, The two candidates who are facing off are actually both former presidents of the island nation, Mark Ravalo Manana and Andrew Rajolina. So in, in uh, set of thinking about political reforms and and um, and change and change, yeah. the story I can't stop watching as it unfolds and wondering where it's headed is this series of political reforms currently underway in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. So Ethiopia chose just recently a former exiled dissident to head its election board um, this week, which is part of a broader set of shakeups by the new prime minister that has brought rebels back into the political mainstream and really started to curb the establishment. Mm-hmm. So the job of the head of the election board went to Bertikan Medet 
Nebraska just weeks after she returned from the United States under an amnesty announced by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. And this is after 13 years after she was jailed in a violent aftermath of the contested 2005 elections. Mm. So Burtakan is one of Ethiopia's most high-profile political prisoners mm-hmm. will now be leading the effort to organize the next vote scheduled for 2020. That's exciting. And especially if we look at the examples of, of past reforms in electoral commission management, such as Atahiro Jega's role in Nigeria's 2011 and the transitional 2015 elections in which Buhari defeated incumbent, good luck, Jonathan, we know that this can be a really significant step in reform. And the appointment in Ethiopia of the electoral commissioner is following a series of other reforms, reconsidering the fundamental ethnic federalism character, a reprochement between Ethiopia and Eritrea, a new set of cabinet appointees last month in which half, half of, of them are women, exactly. exactly, and an internal house cleaning within the government of some um, military business-linked officials, a former spy chief, some northern and eastern elites. So this is really a crucial moment of transition in Ethiopia, but to what end is, is still up for debate. And lucky for us, we'll actually have some time during ASA to chat with Mike Wildemarium of Boston University and ask him how we might interpret these changes in the horn. Some great news this week about South Africa's women's soccer team. They've qualified for the World Cup in France next year. The team, Banyana Banyana, will be playing Nigeria's team in the final today. One last thing, since I just mentioned Nigeria, the British Museum has finally agreed to return the Benin bronzes to Nigeria. The return will happen more than a century after British soldiers stole the bronzes. Now, this is going to be a really complicated return, and I hope we'll have someone on a future episode help us to learn about this more deeply. Perfect. Thanks, Kim, for bringing up those interesting stories, and we'll keep a watch. On Tuesday, we'll post links to what we've mentioned in this episode, as well as bonus links on our website, ufahamaafrica.com. This week, Rachel speaks with Professor Evan Wongi of Northwestern University. They talk about his latest book, Translations in Text, as well as a forthcoming book on animals in African literature. Professor Mwangi earned his bachelor's degree and PhD from the University of Nairobi. So Evan, thank you so much for joining us today on Ubrahama Africa. Thank you. Today we're talking with Evan Wangi, who is a professor of comparative literature and English at Northwestern University. And Evan, I want to start out by congratulating you on your most recent book, Translation in African Context, um, published by Kent State University Press in 2017, which considers cosmopolitan ethics, gender, and sexuality in translations of texts between African languages. In it, you take a look at some of the most notable African writers, as well as translations of Shakespeare and stage adaptations by playwrights and a number of different works and assess the gendered ways that they localize foreign texts and how they allude to various forms of translation in their writings in order to depict the ethical relations to foreigners and the powerless. So this sounds like such a fascinating set of topics and I'm just wondering if you can explain for us how you came to this topic and why did this book need to be written? I realized that Uh, We talk about African literature in African languages a lot. There's a lot of support for that kind of writing, but we really do criticism, like analysis of the text themselves, uh, so that uh, the support for writing in African languages remains at a very abstract, polemical level without any practical reading, close readings of the of the text. My previous book, Africa Writes Back to Self, uses materials mainly from Anglophone texts, a few Swahili book, but the current one draws on 
uh, texts in Kikuyu, Swahili, uh, Sheng, to foreground these texts that have been neglected in African literary studies. I also realized that, you know, we do gender, gender studies in African literature, but literature from East Africa is neglected a lot, with much more focus being on South Africa, West Africa. So I, I tried in this book to bring in materials from East Africa, Nyerere's translations of Shakespeare, Amadinari Habba's translation of Sebena Usmane from Senegal, Charles Mangua and uh, Gugi Wathiongo. I realized that when we talk about translation, it is usually in the context of African texts being translated into Western languages. But I also wanted to see how texts are translated you know, amongst African languages, say a Kikuyu text being translated into Swahili, and how gender dynamics play in the exercise of, of translation. Mm. And how do those gender dynamics play in through the translation? What did you find? I found that texts published in 1960s, 70s did not care very much about gender. Mm. But 21st century writing even incorporate topics that would be considered taboo in African societies, such as queer sexualities. Mm. Uh, for example, when Nyerere translates uh, Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice into Mabeparua Venisi, his mother same sex references in, mm. in Shakespeare. But when I translate, uh, in the 20th century, 21st century, such as Moriah translates the Merry Wives of Windsor mm-hmm. into Wanawakiwa Windsor, he foregrounds even same-sex relations that are not originally in, the, in, in Shakespeare, you know, talking about the issues that uh, an African society would find difficult to, uh, to talk about openly. That is really fascinating, Evan. And for our listeners, how often is it the case, what is the frequency even of translation, as you're suggesting, between African languages from Kukuyu to Swahili, for example, or other other cases? There isn't as much as translations into English. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's been a, you know, a lot of complaint in theory that we tend to assimilate uh, texts from Africa into into the West. But in those few instances in which a text has been translated into an African language, from one African language to another, there's a lot of dialogue mm-hmm. between cultures and the authors bring in their own cultural background to translate mm-hmm. you know, the culture of the other African society. That's so fascinating, exactly. So you see in those... Uh, a kind of dialogue happening within the translation. Yes, for example, when Madina Lihaba translates Sabena Usmane, Sabena Usmane's text is very gender sensitive. He's one of those writers, you know, male African writers from the 1960s that have been very uh, positive in their representation of, of women. Mm-hmm. But when Madina Lihaba translates the work, she even accentuates the gender sensitivity of of the text, and she also adapts that text to Tanzanian socialist politics, even when criticizing some of the nationalist practices in Nyerere's uh, policies. That's fascinating. So, Evan, I'm paraphrasing here, but I've heard you express that in some ways you live a type of bifurcated life, right? On one hand, in your own character, 
you're very reserved and a uh, peacemaker. And yet in your writing, you know, you might be considered polemical. And so I wondered if you could explain for us what is polemical about this book and what reception has it received among different camps and how might you even categorize those different camps for an outsider? Yes, I would I want to imagine myself as a peacemaker in the in the in the real world, but I also come from a background uh, which is fairly militant. You know, I come from the Kikuyu community of Kenya that fought the colonialists in the 1950s, and that part of my biography is felt in my text. They are quite you know polemical. They argue against the dominant traditions. In the book, I might sound as if I'm arguing against the Gogowa Thiongo, mm-hmm. who tends to romanticize African languages mm-hmm. when he says that all African writing should be in African languages. You know, I, I accept that, but I do not want to see African languages as innocent carriers of progress and modernity. Some of the Texts in African languages contain a lot of gender bias, and I expose those in the text. Not to say that African texts are necessarily hegemonic and gender insensitive. I also show that some of the texts in English do similar kind of work depending on the author's ideology. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not that I'm arguing against the Gogis, you know, position about African languages. Yes, actually, I'm so supportive. Uh, I'm very supportive of it. It's only that I would like us to pay attention to those texts and read them in our analysis of African literature, not just, you know, talk about them in the in the abstract. I want to come back to the issue of bifurcation because I think it really resonated. It resonated with me and I think so many of us in our scholarship might put out there a particular view of the world, one that maybe we feel really needs to be articulated or ways of reconceptualizing and understanding that are breaking conventional assumptions or, or common ways of thinking about certain topics. And so we push boundaries with scholarship, and that's often the goal. But in other parts of our lives, you know, we might be peacemakers, empathetic, connected, and seek to be harmonious. So does this create an internal tension for you? Or in, in another way, does one side allow or even encourage the other? It affects my uh, my scholarship in the sense that I'm aware, like in these books, that I'm polemical. But in the writing, I'll acknowledge, you know, what I agree with the person I'm arguing against, and also to ensure that I'm fair in my in my analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, like when writing this book, because I was trained in Nairobi, where I think they taught us to disagree with Goge all the time. Mm. So I know I have that in my template. So when I read Goge, I try to be fair to him so that I'm not just dismissing, you know, this writer because of the way I was trained to dislike his writing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So the two the two aspects, the polemical side of me and the peacemaker in me, you know, go hard in hard. Exactly. Yeah. And when I'm a peacemaker I also want to make sure that I'm um, you know, people are not stepping on my toes mm-hmm. all the time. I mm-hmm. want to fight back if, exactly. <laughs> yeah, if need be. Exactly. And I think that really is a useful way to think about how we treat existing scholarship, how we engage with things that 
we want to push against um, to treat it fairly and really to really engage with it on its own merits, uh, I think is a model for good scholarship. Thank you. So you touched on this a little bit in, in some of your comments, but you grew up in Kenya and you received your PhD in literature from the University of Nairobi. So I would, was wondering if you could share with us what stories or influences throughout your life have been most profound in shaping your writing and the topics that you choose to address. The fact that I learned English as a second language when I was around 10. No, so Kikuyu is the language in which I'm most comfortable with. But when, when I went to the university, I did not uh, read a lot of texts in Kikuyu or Kiswahili because the literature department focused more, much more on texts in, in English. Mm-hmm. Even if from the 1960s, the late 1960s, uh, scholars emphasized the shift from English to African languages in practice that wasn't done. So most of my reading was, you know, even if it's African literature, it is African literature in European languages. So when I came here and realized we have all these materials in African languages, I started paying great attention mm-hmm. uh, to them, you know, mm-hmm. reading Gakarawa Wanjao, whom I knew about in Kenya but had never read. Wow. Even reading Goge's novels in Kikuyu in the original language mm-hmm. and seeing uh, the things that he changes in his translation, because sometimes he translates his own book, but when changing it into English, he changes some, some sections or suppresses some parts that in English might not make uh, uh, sense. Mm-hmm. I was also taught by very strong women professors mm-hmm. uh, like Siaruji Chasaina and Wajiko Mukabi Kabera, Helen Mwanzi, uh, who taught me to be very sensitive to women's representations in texts. So I'm extremely careful when reading a text to see how the author represents or misrepresents women's issues and generally gender and sexuality uh, concerns in the in the text. The canon in East Africa is also very elitist, so we tend only to look at the great traditions in East Africa, but I realized that we also need to pay attention to popular culture, novels by Mangua, uh, David Milo, which are real, you know, they're really treated as serious works uh, for, for scholarship, but when you read them they reveal a perspective of society that is not found in uh, the conventional, canonical, so-called serious literature. Mm, that is, is really insightful. And what other projects are you working on now? There's always a sense of, you know, that book is out, and what are your, your current topics? Now I'm finishing copy edits for my next monograph mm-hmm. um, called The Postcolonial Animal coming out of Michigan uh, University Press in spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about the representations of animals and animal issues in African literature, drawing on canonical texts again and popular culture. And I'm trying to push back this notion that animal studies is a white writer's issue. Because mm-hmm. even in the West, where critical animal studies is developed, 
uh, people tend to see when they look at Africa, they only see J.M. Kuzier, who is a great author, but there are many other writers that concern themselves with animal issues. African oral literature is about animals mm -hmm. and even the canonical theoretical texts from you know, Fanon, Nemi, they refer to animality in the representation of the African. And when I looked at the materials and, you know, for a class I was teaching in spring 2013, I realized there is absolutely nothing on uh, African animal studies. So I decided to uh, to write the book. I'm hoping to submit it for typesetting this, this weekend. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's a very good position to be so close to, <laughs> to the final product. We yeah. look forward to seeing Thank that you. one come out in the very near future. So we ask all our guests before they go, are there any books you've read recently that you might recommend to our readers? And I feel like your recommendations are going to be particularly rich for us, um, given your close textual analysis. I'm rereading my colleague Chris Abani's novel, The Secret History of Las Vegas, which I like a lot. It's a mystery uh, text. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a mystery novel written in a humorous, you know, historical way and set in the U.S. about a South African writer. And Chris Abani enables us to see that Africa is diverse. You know, it's not just one segment of society you know we have all these connections with the rest of the world mm -hmm. yeah. absolutely i think that is a very particularly rich note to end on um, as we approach the rest of our weeks and the you know ways of thinking about the world in this complex setting that we're in so thank you so much for your time evan it's thank great to talk with you thank you for having me asante san That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. Don't forget to follow and share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. You can listen to Ufahamu Africa on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. Ufahamu Africa is a production created by Kimi Dion and currently sponsored by the Program of African Studies and the Department of Political Science at Northwestern University, as well as the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Riverside. Kara Stevick, Middle School of Journalism Class of 2019, is Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.